According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me this morning, if you would, in Philippians. Returning to Philippians chapter 2 in the Kenosis passage. We actually have not yet even given the vocabulary. Kanao uh, is the verb, kenosis is the noun. And uh, we have it here in verse 7 where he emptied himself. He cannot owe himself and uh, made himself void. It might even be another way that you could render it. But we, uh, we want to understand it not only linguistically, what does it mean, what does the verb mean, but then theologically, how can God the Son, who's immutable, uh, does he change or what does this emptiness consist of? What is this? There's no change to deity. He is undiminished deity while he is true humanity, united together in one person forever. And so this is uh, the Kenosis passage is a powerful passage and allows us to explore the, 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 the depths of hypostatic union. What does it mean to be the God-man and uh, the blessings of our Savior as he identified with us? And so this is where we are. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer to humble ourselves, to confess any sin that needs to be dealt with to set aside any other distractions, to ask the Father to bless our time. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before you this morning thankful for grace and truth, thankful for your Son. And Father, we call upon your faithfulness now this hour as we have assembled together, not in our own name, but in the name of your Son, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit who uh, leads us in, the, in all things, even the deep things of God. So once again, Father, manifest your faithfulness. Lead us, teach us, bless us, feed us, Father, what we need to know. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we are in the portion of the book that's titled Have This Attitude, and we're looking basically at verses 3 through 11 with have this attitude. Have this attitude is the prime imperative here uh, that comes in verse 5. There's a long introduction to it that comes in verses 3 and 4, and then there's a follow-up in verses uh, really 6 through 9. And so you can kind of see the structure of that as, as we look through. Let's look together through these passages. Um, and as I read 3 and 4 in particular, I, I will kind of retranslate as we go to, to stress the the introductory participles that are paving the way for the main imperative. And so where it says do nothing, we want to change that to doing nothing or even thinking nothing. And I prefer thinking. Uh, we have to have some kind of a, a verb to go with the, the adverb here. Otherwise it just says nothing from selfishness or nothing from empty conceit. And uh, we want to supply a verb there in the thinking that will help to complete the, the idea of nothing, the adverb here, nothing. And so do is, is the most common of the verbs that, that English Bibles put in there. But I prefer think or thinking because uh, of the verbs in verse 2. Thinking nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regarding one another as more important than yourselves, not looking out for your own interests, but looking out for the interests of others. And you see, all of that is introduction. We have yet to hit a main verb. 
Uh, and by, by translating these participles as participles, we're allowing the text to carry us forward. And that's exactly what it's designed to do. Again, let me just start it over. Thinking nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regarding one another as more important than yourselves, not looking out for your own personal interests, but looking out for the interests of others, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So you see how it did that? Thinking, thinking, having, not having. Then the imperative, have this attitude. And when we get to the have this attitude, where we are in point four of the outline, have this attitude, literally what it says is think this thing. Think this thing. Have this attitude is literally think this thing in yourself, which also in Christ Jesus. And we could think of it as a was, we can think of it as an is, we've got a supply of verb there. Think this thing in yourself, which also in Christ Jesus. Uh, we, I don't think it's necessarily wrong to think of it as was uh, in the process of what he did in first advent, but I would also stress that we can think of it as an is, because as he was, as, as he is, as he will always be, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever, he didn't stop having that attitude, he didn't have victory at the cross and then storm up to heaven and immediately plunge into arrogance and selfishness and uh, everything that, that was his way of thinking back then is still his way of thinking now. He remains focused on the benefit of others. He remains thinking not of himself, but others. He remains humble in all that he does. He remains obedient to the Father in all that he does. And so um, nothing really wrong with a was in verse 5. The thinking which was also in Christ Jesus, it continues to be in Christ Jesus. It will always be in Christ Jesus, so it should always be in us. We should have it in us now and uh, forevermore. Have this attitude in yourselves. So think this thing in yourselves which also was in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the example for us to follow. And we looked at these passages on Wednesday, uh, uh, John thirteen fifteen and 1 Peter two twenty one. There's an example for us to follow. Uh, not only the example to follow, but the standard to which we strive. The, uh, the objective of our Christian growth. When the Bible says grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, well, when does that stop? Uh, what's the target? When do we stop growing? How much do we have to grow? You know, at a certain point, have we grown enough? Can we stop now? Can we say, that's good enough, I'm content? Uh, no. The point is, some people do, and that's very sad. That there are believers that reach a level of their growth, typically adolescence, where they think it's a lot more than it is, and uh, they, they feel that's enough, that's sufficient, that's good enough. And the idolatry of good enough is one of Satan's great tools that draws us into those realms of complacency. Okay, Because whatever we've grown to, it's not enough. We're to forget what lies behind. We're to reach forward to what lies ahead. We are to lay hold of that for which also we were laid hold of by Christ Jesus. And don't assume you've done it already. If you've done it already, you wouldn't be here. That's a fact. <laughs> if you have learned every lesson and passed every test and done every assignment that Father's given you, you wouldn't still be here. He would take you home and say, well done, good and faithful servant. So the fact that he, he hasn't taken you home yet means that there's more to, uh, to reach. And Jesus is the standard. He's the standard to which we strive. And that's Ephesians 4. I'll grab that real quickly and then we'll gain new ground. Ephesians 4, 
This is why we have pastor teachers and evangelists. Uh, it's why originally the early church had apostles and prophets. We have these equipping ministries, these gifts and ministries that are designed for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. And that edification is each one of us individually, but all of us collectively. The whole body is growing corporately, the body of Christ, every believer from Pentecost to rapture, and we're being brought together in a, in a bride for His Son. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, and how do you define maturity? To the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And that's the bar. That's what we attain to. So Jesus is the example for us to follow. He's also the standard to which we strive. All right. Now, the kenosis hymn. We get into this hymn. Verses 6 through 11 is a hymn. I don't dispute that. Uh, it's, it's, clean, it's plainly uh, written in such a fashion so think this, which was also in Christ Jesus, who? Okay, now if you don't want to start your songs with who, uh, probably you're not an ancient Greek, okay? Uh, but in, in uh, uh, not only the ancient Greeks would start songs with who, but Hebrews would start their songs with who. In the ancient Near East, there were many songs that were started with who, or he who, the one who. Uh, hymns of praise dedicated to any god would typically start with who? or he who. And I'm going to show you some of those pagan examples as well as the biblical examples here this morning. But the idea of who starts off several songs in uh, Old and New Testament alike. Although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. And as we go through the text, these words have rhythm, they have, uh, not rhyme as we think of it, but they have concepts that parallel. That was their form of rhyming, right? A very Hebrew mode to have an A and a B part to a verse that have parallels. And so there's the the form of God and then there's equality of God. Um, Verse 7, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, and I love the fact that the song doesn't end with a death, because Jesus' story doesn't end with a death. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that in the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Pay attention to that. We're going to detail that. The definition of everything as per uh, Philippians is in the heavens, on the earth, and under the earth. The definition of everything as per Ephesians 1.10 is just in the heavens and on the earth. And that's a significant adjustment. There is no more under the earth consideration in the fullness of time. The lake of fire is populated and sealed off and never to be opened ever again in uh, in that uh, fullness of time age we're looking forward to. Anyway, side trip on that. So that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that's what it's about. 
The Father's plan is to magnify the Son, but ultimately the Son's plan is to hand it right back to the Father and glorify the Father. When the Father reaches the pinnacle of His plan at the conclusion of those thousand generations of those who love Jesus Christ, then Jesus Himself will deliver up the kingdom to the Father that God may be all in all. And we have that omega moment that is described in in, uh, 1 Corinthians 15. Now, as far as this hymn is concerned, did Paul write this hymn? Maybe. Uh, Some think not, uh, because he was a a pharisaical lawyer. Uh, But that doesn't mean he can't have a hobby. That doesn't mean he couldn't be musical. Uh, He could have written this hymn. There are other hymns in the Pauline literature. Uh, Eliezer uh, taught us one uh, in the Mystery of Godliness a couple Sundays ago from 1 Timothy chapter 3. There are other hymns in the uh, Pauline literature such as uh, the gospel message of 1 Corinthians 15. Um, He died for our sins according to the Scripture. He was buried. He rose again on the third day according to the Scripture. And some of these uh, things appear to be um, from other sources beyond Paul himself, that he adapted them, that he incorporated them. And uh, he used other people's material, put them, obviously the Holy Spirit put them in the Scripture under uh, inspiration. Either way, I don't honestly care. All right, because whoever, if it wasn't Paul, it was an anonymous hymn writer that we don't know and can't know and won't know until we get to heaven. Uh, but the fact is, the Holy Spirit through Paul put it in our Bibles for us. And uh, if he didn't originally write it, he at least adapted it for the doctrine of this chapter. And uh, and I'm thankful for that. The New Testament urges believers to speak to one another in songs, hymns, and spiritual songs. All right. And that clearly was the case. And they were doing this already, even before Ephesians was written, even before Colossians was written. This is what they were urged to do. And so I believe, right from day one, right from Pentecost onward, this is what believers were doing. Colossians 3.16, I believe the Holy Spirit was coming upon every believer from the, the moment they got saved after Pentecost, and under the influence of the Holy Spirit, their gifts were being manifest, their prophetic utterances were coming forth, and that's what they were learning under, the, of course, the leadership of the apostles and the prophets. And so uh, today we do the same thing. We just don't have prophetic utterance. We have a complete canon, and yet we still do the same thing because this was put in Scripture as a command. So it says in Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Don't just sit in Bible class and fill notebooks and, and, and get information. Remember, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And so we want the word of Christ to richly dwell within you. It's not a, just an earthly, secular, academic study. This is the living and abiding Word of God. And as we receive it, it dwells richly if you let it. Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. Isn't that powerful? And how many believers are doing that and how many believers are not letting it? They're squishing it. They're dampening it down. They're grieving, quenching, and resisting the Holy Spirit by not letting that living Word come alive. No, let it come alive. Let it richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And so we have this blessing. And some folks uh, 
exercise this more than others, and, and uh, what a joy. You get scripture memory melodies, for example, whereby the Word of God is put to music, and whereby Doug can bless all of us, and we can bless one another by learning the songs that he's writing in, uh, in doing this. Or uh, any other song that comes across. There's a new Signature Sound CD that just got released last Friday. It's my favorite gospel quartet group. And already, I don't have the CD yet, but I've already found that all every track from that CD is already on YouTube. All right, So I've been able to listen to it, and there's some great songs on it. And, and there are blessings. And they communicate. And so here's a song, and it communicates, and what does it do? It reminds me of a verse. It reminds me of a passage. It reminds me of a sequence of passages as it relates to uh, all the things that God has done on our behalf in any event. That's what we're told to do. So teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your heart, hearts, plural, to God. And so we should be able to do this one to another in being able to encourage and sing and remind and, uh, and all of that. And since that was happening in the early church, it's not shocking that some of those then got preserved in the New Testament, and that's what we have in Philippians 2, 6 through 11. We have a song, some people limit the, the song to 6 through 9. Um, I, I take the song all the way down through um, 6 through 11. Uh, and there's, there's no end to the debate too, by the way. 6 through 8, some people will say, 6 through uh, nine others would say, and others just take it six through eleven, which I think makes the most sense to me uh, ephesians five nineteen parallel to Colossians ephesians five nineteen So it says in verse 15, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men but as wise. The Christian way of life just doesn't come automatically. You have to be careful. You have to live out the Word of God, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but get drunk with the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. We want to be under the influence of not drugs or alcohol. We want to be under the influence of God, the Holy Spirit. And under that influence, right? Think back. No, don't think back. Um, Well, You've read a book or you've seen a movie where a drunk person started singing for no particular reason. Because they were drunk. Because they were feeling good. And whatever reason, then somebody starts to sing and then somebody else starts to sing and then you've got a whole bar that's just singing this, uh, this song. Anyway, God can work in that. Some of those old English pub songs actually... The tunes were adapted for some Christian hymns. And people today don't even realize the Christian hymns are singing. It used to be a, a pub song back in, the, back in the day. But in any event, if you are not drunk with wine but filled with the Spirit, you're going to think a certain way. You're going to have a perspective you wouldn't have. Um, you know, a drunk person thinks things they wouldn't think if they were sober and says things they wouldn't say if they were sober. So too, finish the parallel. The parallel. What's the corollary in this verse? Be filled with the Holy Spirit. A Spirit-filled believer thinks things they wouldn't think if they were not Spirit-filled. And says things they wouldn't say if they were not Spirit-filled. And sings things they wouldn't sing if they were not Spirit-filled. You know. You're going to be self-conscious about your terrible singing voice? Or are you going to love the Lord and make a joyful noise? Alright? Because when you're filled with the Spirit, who cares? 
Okay? Make a joyful noise. Sing it out there. Love the Lord. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. And think about that. Singing and making melody. You get to be your own accompanist, right? You get to be your own harmonizer, your own melody, right? Because, you know, as I said, the, I like four-part harmony. I like gospel quartet music because the tenor can go way up higher than anybody else and the bass can go way down lower than anybody else and then you got your other voices that fill it in and it just it's marvelous the way that works. Well, we get to do it singing, but our heart, the innermost core of our being with all the doctrine, with all that frame of reference and all the truth that loves Jesus Christ. Think about the the nature of that where you're the heart gets to make the melody in uh, the doctrine that it's reflecting. Anyway, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. And so this is what the New Testament urges. And like I say, it shouldn't be surprising that some of those early songs, some of those early songs ended up in the New Testament itself as the New Testament started being written. There is a uh, an unbeliever who wrote to another unbeliever, <laughs> okay? Part of the apologetic ministry, some of the information that you learn, Pliny the Younger. And he was governor of Bithynia, uh, a region there um, north of Asia, north of Ephesus, uh, kind of in today it's called Turkey, but um, in Bithynia. And, and so he wrote to the emperor and he wanted guidance. Uh, he was trying to stamp out these pesky Christians and um, wanted guidance from the emperor and, and actually did some investigation and reported to the emperor what he'd learned. Uh, the problem was these, these pesky Christians were very moral people <laughs> and they weren't really troublemakers. Uh, the problem was though they weren't praying to the state religion, they weren't praying to Caesar, they, weren't, uh, they didn't view Jesus, uh, uh, Julius Caesar as God or Augustus as God. They wouldn't take part in the, in the state-sanctioned uh, worship. So he wrote a letter, and in uh, Pliny's uh, epistle, uh, 1096 is the, is the reference, but part of what he wrote is that these Christians are in the habit of singing hymns, uh, hymns that they write, hymns that they compose to, their, to this Christ person, and they view him as not just dead, but risen and God himself. All right? And so this is a marvelous testimony that goes back uh, that even without, this is not a friendly witness. This is not uh, you know, a prejudiced Christian that's validating the Bible intentionally. This is a hostile pagan who's validating the Bible unintentionally by describing what the early Christian beliefs were in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ and his exaltation to heaven and the fact that he is God. He is God, right? As we are going to study in hypostatic union, undiminished deity, true humanity united together in one person forever. And so there's a secular witness and testimony, and this is what Christians would do. We would come together and we would sing. And what a blessing is that. And I recall, even from my child, I got saved at a young age, and I recall what, how fun it was and what a blessing it was that when we were in church, it was dad, mom, me, no, I was at the end, uh, the youngest next to mom, and then Matt, Mary. Um, anyway, now I'm getting fuzzy on what order we used to sit in. We all sat in the same row, I know I was on the far end because I was the oldest and I was expected to behave myself the best. <laughs> In theory, that's what their plan was anyway. 
But we were together and we were singing. See? And this was the beginning of every Sunday morning and then after the, the third hymn then the children would be dismissed to the Sunday school and we would, we would file out and, and we would have age appropriate teaching in, in different classes and things like that. But we started together as families and we were singing. And I remember what a blessing to have the fact that my father was a believer, my mother was a believer, that my siblings were believers and that we were singing together. Because we could all sing together. And when we learned the hymns and all of this and uh, it was uh, a marvelous thing of, of Christian unity. And that doesn't matter if you were if you're pushing ninety and got saved in the nineteen forties, uh, or if you're just a, a ten year old little kid and you got saved a couple years back. We're all singing together. We're all singing the hymns. We're all a part of this body of Christ. And so we have that. The idea of he who is a common opening line to such hymns, or just simply who. If the subject was uh, if the subject was referenced earlier, then you could just get away with a who and start it with that. Um, and I think that's the case here. So have this a- a attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, and then just go with the hymn from there. Uh, if if you didn't have that introduction, then you might start with a he who. If uh, you're just announcing the hymn of praise to Jesus Christ, and so you would stand and say my hymn of praise to Jesus Christ, he who, and take it from there. And it's all about what he, who he is, what he's done, everything centered on him. And so a couple of examples, Colossians 1, back to Colossians again, but an earlier chapter, 15 through 20. And we've got an introduction here in uh, the verses that lead up to it. So we're talking about Christ and um, and that. he. Uh, verse 13 says, He, that's the Father actually, rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. That is a past event. That is a moment in time when you pass from darkness into life and you became saved. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So that, again, the reference is Christ in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And then a hymn, a hymn that Paul records for us here with a he who. He who is in the image, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By him, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And it continues. I believe the lyric nature of these words continue. Verse 17, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Some people end the him there, and then make 19 and 20 Paul's explanation. Um, be that as it may, others prefer to take the hymn all the way down through verse 20. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross, through Him, I say, were the things on earth or things in heaven. 
All right. So there again, it's not always clear, and, and scholars sometimes debate it back and forth and argue amongst themselves. You know, where does the hymn exactly end, and where does Paul kind of pick up his own commentary and his own uh, additional information? But either way, First uh, Timothy three sixteen. And if you want more on First Timothy three sixteen, I recommend get on the website and listen to Eliezer's message, because he. Uh, took us through this a couple Sunday nights ago. 1 Timothy 3 has all this information for overseers and deacons and uh, information related to the operation of a church in the New Testament. And uh, he says in verse 14, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of the truth. And based on that then, he then recites this song. And maybe it was a a hymn that Timothy knew anyway. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. And look how it starts. He who. He who was revealed in the flesh. He who was vindicated in the spirit. He who was seen by angels. And you can put a he who in front of all these. Um, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. That's why we're here. (laughs) We're here because of everything He did. And apart from His finished work, and apart from His ongoing ministry, seated at the Father's right hand, we couldn't be a church. How could we be a church? How could the church universal be the church universal? Or how, how could a local church be a local church in Christ without this mystery of godliness? This, uh, this truth. And so um, stay tuned. I, I, I haven't totally worked it through yet, but I'm finding more and more themes that, that connect Philippians 2 with, with this, with, with 1 Timothy 3. That this mystery of godliness is the sequel to the Kenosis hymn. That the Kenosis hymn celebrates everything that he did when he emptied himself, when he came to this earth, when he identified with us. And then a follow-up to that has him ascended to the Father taken up in glory, and now seated at the Father's right hand, what, what is our delight? What is our blessing? What is our position? And uh, the applications there. Alright, we also have some pagan examples, uh, too many to quote, but those that crept into apocryphal text uh, we can at least look at. Some of the apocryphal texts, by the way, were never ever in the Hebrew canon but they were added to the Septuagint. And so on that basis then, many in the early church had access to them. Many in the early church uh, would read them because the Septuagint was their Old Testament. The, uh, the Greek Septuagint was, uh, particularly for Greeks, for Gentiles, the Greek Septuagint was their, was their Old Testament. Okay? Now it's not Bible, are we clear? The, the apocryphal books from the Septuagint are not Bible. And Jerome was smart enough when he was putting everything in Latin and he wrote the Vulgate, he separated out those, uh, those apocryphal books that never were a part of the Hebrew canon. And so when he put his Vulgate together for the, for the Roman church, he was very clear. These, these were Hebrew books that he put into, into Latin. These were um, apocryphal Greek books that he put into Latin. And then there were New Testament Greek books that he put into Latin. And so when Jerome did that, he, uh, I think, was, was brilliant in that. And we, we can be appreciative of that. But have you ever heard of Sirach? 
Sirach ben Jesus or Sirach or Ecclesiasticus sometimes. It's got different names. But Sirach, did I... Uh, oh, I did. I forgot to make those clickers. Okay, well then we'll do it the hard way. Um, so first one we want to look at is Sirach 46.1. All right. Now, Sirach won't be in your Bibles unless you're sitting here this morning with an old, old, old King James. Um, they originally put the Apocrypha in the 1611 King James and then took it out of later King James. Um, you might also have a New Revised Standard Version or a Revised Standard Version, or maybe you just have a, an English Apocrypha. Um, but whatever the case. And we can open up. Do I? No, oh, who cares? We don't need to open up a Greek text. You can put the, the, the Greek and the, and the uh, English in parallel. You can even put the Vulgate if you want in parallel. Um, but here's Sirach 46. And uh, Jesus, the son of Noe, was, was valiant in the wars and was the successor of Moses in the prophecies. See, what a, what a dumb spelling, right? We would have Joshua, the son of Nun, okay? This is Jesus, the son of Noe. Anyway, valiant in the wars, successor of Moses in prophecies, who according to his name was made great for the saving of the elect of God, taking vengeance on the enemies that rose up against them, that he might set Israel in their inheritance. Anyway, this is a he who. This is Joshua, what we have in our Bibles is Joshua. Um, and, and Joshua is the, the Hebrew form of Jesus. So um, I don't really get wrapped up about that. But anyway, so it announces the person and then it starts to give a series of he who. He who did this, he who did that. Valiant in the war, successor of Moses, who, according to his name, was made great for the saving of the elect of God and taking vengeance on the enemies that rose up against them, that he might set Israel in their inheritance. Uh, how great glory get he when he did lift up his hands and stretched out his sword against the cities. This is a, an English translation that goes back to 1876, I think, or something like that. Uh, as far as that goes. All right, so that's chapter 46. You don't need to read any more of that. Chapter 48. one. Then stood up Elias, or Elijah, the prophet as fire, and his word burned like a lamp. He, or he who, brought a sore famine upon them, and by his zeal he diminished their number. By the word of the Lord, he shut up the heaven. He also three times brought down fire. O Elias, how was thou honored in thy wondrous deeds? And who made glory like unto thee? Who didst raise up a dead man from death and his soul from the place of the dead by the word of the Most High? So it's a hymn of praise to this old prophet. Okay? And, and it's curious too, you know, our Bible speaks of the prophets and talks about what they did, but it doesn't laud them and praise them and sing hymns of glory to, uh, to any of them. Because if they were faithful, they were faithful, but let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. I don't see anything comparable to this in the, in the real Old Testament. Um, who brought kings to destruction and honorable men from their bed, who heard the rebuke of the Lord in Sinai. Um, Anyway, who was taken up in a whirlwind of fire and a chariot of fiery horses. So anyway, it's, it's the idea here, okay? Here's a hymn writer. Here's somebody that wanted to write a song to celebrate Elijah. And so they did, okay? 
And we're still doing that to this day. Gospel quartets will still talk about Elijah and the fiery chariot going up to heaven. And, and uh, there's, there's songs to this day that are celebrating those things. Not necessarily magnifying Elijah because God's the one that, that did the work. Okay? The next one is uh, chapter 49 and verse 8. Ezekiel, right? Ezekiel saw the wheel. <laughs> we got songs about Ezekiel and dim bones and all kinds of things. Um, but here's Sirach's version, praising Ezekiel. It was Ezekiel who saw the glorious vision which uh, was shewed him upon the chariot of the cherubims. For he made mention of the enemies under the figures of the rain and directed them that went right. And the twelve prophets, let the memorial be blessed, let their bones flourish again out of their place. Anyway, it goes on. To, and, oh, and then Zerubbabel. How shall we magnify Zerubbabel? Even he was a signet on the right hand. That's a, that's a significant doctrine there. And I would love to, I can't wait to meet Zerubbabel. And this, the signet ring is a, is a powerful prophecy that's given to Zerubbabel. So was Jesus, or Joshua, the high priest, son of Josedek, who in their time builded the house and set up a holy temple to the Lord, which was prepared for everlasting glory. And among the elect was Nehemiah, whose renown is great, who raised up for us the walls that were fallen and set up the gates and the bars and raised up our ruins again. Simon the high priest, son of Onias, who in his life repaired the house again and in his days fortified the temple. Anyway, there's some common examples. The last one is in chapter 50. Simon, the high priest, son of... Oh, I read that already. Simon, the high priest, son of Ananias. Oh, that's what the L was about. We crossed over to chapter 50. Gotcha. Who in his life repaired the house again and in his days fortified the temple. And by him he did this, and by him he did this, and by him he did this. So anyway, this was kind of the nature of these hymns of praise. Okay? And I can show you some other ones, but uh, I don't think it'd be as edifying. I'm not sure how edifying that might have been, but uh, how edifying these other ones are when, when the Babylonians are singing to Marduk or when, uh, you know, when the Egyptians are singing to Pharaoh or all these other things are going on in any event. So the hymn that begins with a he-who is uh, not weird. And when we're going to worship Jesus, that's even better. Okay? Because if it's a man and we're going to magnify a man, we're missing the point. Okay? Even a faithful man, even you know, Moses or any of these true heroes from the Old Testament would not want hymns of praise to their glory. Whatever they did, it was grace. Whatever they did was God working. Did, did Moses give bread out of heaven? Did Moses part the Red Sea? God gave bread out of heaven. God parted the Red Sea. And so when you do a true legitimate survey of, of, of things in the past, we, we have a place in our Bible uh, called the Hall of Fame, right? Of Hebrews 11. And there's a great section there where we're talking about great heroes and what was done. But what was done was they exercised faith. They walked by faith and then God did some amazing things. God did the miracles because believers were living the Word of God, walking by faith. That's, that's legitimate. That's what a hymn should be. Now when you get to Jesus, now okay, now we've got somebody that's worthy of singing about. We can, we can praise Jesus because He is God. God in the flesh. He is God. And we can praise Him all day long. And we can worship Him. And we should. 
because it's the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. And that's what it's about. So, uh, singing this hymn of praise. The Kenosis Hymn, point six, the, the Kenosis Hymn provides a creedal affirmation of the hypostatic union of Jesus Christ. The Kenosis Hymn provides a creedal you can think of it as a creed. The early church had a lot of creeds. The Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. And those creeds actually were developed out of early Christian teaching that every believer accepted, many of which showed up in, in hymns. They, they were so accepted and so known that they were sung about. And as uh, they were accepted by the universal body of Christ and all these churches, when the when the uh, bishops would come together for their church councils, then it was very natural to then uh, put them in a written form, a form that became a creed that we uh, can understand. But this is a creedal affirmation of the hypostatic union of Jesus Christ. And, and so we're going to start working our way through these, uh, these things. Um, his preexistence, His humility, His emptying, his uh, more humility, you know, uh, just because you pass a humility test early uh, doesn't mean you're done with the humility testing. You're going to get it again, and you're going to get it again, and you're going to get it at the very last. It was a humility test for his death. It was a humility test in the Garden of Gethsemane, a humility test on the cross. And he becomes obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so um, all these affirmations come through. And by learning this hymn, by singing this hymn, believers are equipped to, to do what? Equipped to evangelize, equipped to go out to this lost and dying world and sing that hymn and share that story about Jesus Christ. Okay? So we start with his existence. He existed in the form of God. In morphe theu. He existed in the form of God in Morphe Theu. And the word for existence is curious too. I didn't put it on the screen, but the idea, we have different verbs for is, all right? We have verbs for is like, like Amy to, to, to be, or Ginomai to become, or Huparco. And what we have here is Huparco. It's not, it's only got 30 New Testament uses, there's not a ton of them. It's not as pervasive as Amy or, or Ginema, but the huparko that speaks of the existence, the reality of an existence, not just being, but the reality of that existence. And uh, so I like the translation existence rather than being, because that helps me remember that it's huparko instead of Amy. But he had an existence. And of course, as God the Son, he has an et- eternal existence. And, uh, and so we have a hymn here that really reflects, I think, the, uh, the, the pre-existent glory of, of Jesus Christ, what Lewis was teaching last Sunday night in, uh, in the deity of Christ, the fact that deity is eternal. So if Jesus preceded his, his human walk, then that's an indication of his eternality, that if he was around before Abraham, then, then, uh, or at Abraham's time or earlier, then he was around before the first century. That pre-existence speaks of his eternality and is one of the lines of evidence that can be used uh, to prove the deity of Christ. And so last Sunday night we had 
a lot of that. Join me in, in John 1 and we'll show you how the Gospel of John introduces it. But keep in mind, as this hymn is written, there is no Gospel of John. Okay, think, think about that. No believer in Philippi has read what we're about to read. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. There's no, there's no Gospel of John yet when the Philippians are receiving the book of Philippians. When, when Paul or, or this anonymous hymn writer writes the Kenosis hymn, there's no Gospel of John written yet when he writes the Kenosis hymn. So this is doctrine that they learned uh, through the apostles, through the prophets. They learned it spirit, from the prophetic utterance. They learned it from uh, spiritual revelation. Or they learned it from the apostles themselves who taught it based upon what they knew. Anyway, John 1.1. 1, 1. Pre-existence here. In the beginning. <laughs> in the beginning. That takes you back. <laughs> That's like Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, or Colossians 1, in the beginning. Here's the beginning. Well, which beginning is this? This beginning is even earlier than the Genesis beginning. In the beginning was the Word. So think of in the beginning as this timeless pre-temporal dimension, right? What we call eternity past. It's before time, before that, ome- that alpha moment, before the, uh, the created dimension of space-time as we understand it. So uh, prior to anything else, in the beginning was the Word. And was is continuous action in past time, the continuous eternal nature of being, Amy, being the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And so we have a dynamic here between God the Father and God the Son. We, we get it. This is Jesus Christ who's called the Word. This is God the Son who becomes, the, uh, becomes flesh. But it, it starts off with this existence. And not just an existence, but an existence in fellowship. They are together. The Word was with God. The Word was God. So we have one deity, but two persons specifically mentioned here. Holy Spirit is not mentioned, we get that elsewhere. So he was in the beginning, the same. This one was in the beginning with God. And there's an intimacy between these two, and not to diminish the Holy Spirit, but there's an intimacy between these two that's unique, between the Father and the Son. Now, all things came into being through him. So this is now where we have a ginomai, we have a become. Everything that has become has a cause for how it became. And that's that's just Scripture. That's what this verse is saying. Philosophers have come along and categorized it, and they've, they agree they, that if something has a beginning, then there is a cause, there is a reason, an explanation for its beginning, for its existence. And so uh, the Bible tells us that it's God, specifically Jesus Christ. God the Son is the agent of this. So apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and life was the light of man. So when he says, let there be light, what's in connection with that? The provision of life for the realm of humanity. And uh, the, the expression of the will of God that a created realm of existence is going to possess the very life that God himself possesses. The light shines in the darkness and darkness 
did not comprehend it. So we've got this prologue now to the Gospel of John, a gospel that comes decades after the Synoptic Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke were all written in the, in the uh, well, I think the 50s, possibly even Matthew could have even been written in the 40s. All right, Mark in the 50s, late 50s, uh, Luke in the early 60s, before he wrote Acts. But uh, we don't get John until the, uh, I believe, the 80s A.D. And so there's pre-existence. And then what happens? So he, he creates everything, and then what? Well, then we get the witness that sent. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. The herald is going to precede the Messiah. And he comes to announce the coming king, the coming Messiah, the coming light. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. And that's uh, his blessing. Verse 9, there was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. (laughs) I talk to atheists today and they say, well, if God is true, why doesn't he just come to this earth and show me? Been there, done that. Okay, he did. He created this world and he came into this world. Let me give you a gospel of John to read. He came to his own. Now specifically by virtue of virgin birth, by virtue of a a birth entrance into the world. You know, if he would have just materialized or just shown up on a white horse or something, who, what race would he have been? What people group would he have been, belonged to? Okay, if he just popped in out of nothingness into existence, okay? But no, he was birthed. So he has a birth mother, and he has the adopted birth father, and he has a people group. He has a tribe and a nation and a race. And he comes to his own. And you'll notice that, that your people group is yours. Other people groups that are not you are not yours. Okay? We're not saying they're good or they're bad or whatever. We're just saying, you have yours. Everybody has theirs. And that, that is their own. You are your own, whatever it may be. Okay, And that's a whole different doctrinal study right there. Because in Christ, it makes no difference. Whether Jew or Gentile, bond or free, male, who cares? We're all one in Christ. We become a new creation in Christ, a new race, a new uh, people group. But he came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. Rejected by the religious leaders, the political leaders, and crucified. The kingdom was delayed. He was not accepted. But a handful did. As many as received him. As many as. Remember, whosoever will. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And so by faith in Jesus Christ, there's no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. Faith in Jesus Christ then provides, that's the the only criterion, singular of criteria, the only criterion for this life, the life of the light of Jesus Christ, is faith in Christ. Faith in Christ. That's the only valid object of faith. And so by faith in Christ then is granted the right to become children of God. And no one comes unless the Father who sent me draws him. And this is what happens. And so we become children of God. And he gives us that right. We can come. 
those who believe in his name. Who were born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And here's another restatement of the, the true light comes into the world. The word became flesh. He wasn't just the true light coming into the world in deity as God the Son. Uh, there were plenty of Old Testament Christophanies that, uh, you know, the, the burning bush was God the Son in a Christophany, an Old Testament Christophany. Uh, the, the pillar of fire, the, the cloud by day, those were Christophanies, the personal presence of God the Son, but in a pre-incarnate revelation. No, pre, in, incarnation, by the way, means flesh, right? Carne, gasada, flesh, carna, meat, okay? That's our flesh is our carnality. Now I'm making myself hungry. So we talk about the incarnation. The incarnation is when the, the Spirit of God, that is, went in, because remember, God is spirit, God is not body, but the second member of Trinity obtained a body. As he sings in Psalm 40 and quoted in Hebrews, a body thou hast prepared for me. And so the invisible God, although he existed in the, in the Morphe Theu, he existed, his existence was Morphe Theu until the incarnation, until the word became flesh. So we see how this works? All right. And so the word became flesh, became genomai. This is something it was not before. There's a difference between being and becoming. He was eternally being God, but he became flesh. At a point of time, he became flesh. And then tabernacled among us, dwelt among us. I love the fact that it's tabernacled, tented among us. All right? And so his incarnation ministry, he was just tabernacling. And you know, we know what the doctrine of tabernacle was. It was a place where, uh, where people could meet God, where God would dwell. And uh, here he is tabernacling for a short time. And we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And this is the, the, the beauty of it. Okay? Now, uh, this doesn't validate uh, reincarnation. It doesn't validate the preexistence of your soul or my soul. A lot of New Agers try to take it there, try to say, well, just like Jesus was preexistent and then he was incarnated, so too with us. We were preexistent. We're eternal beings. We've always been there. Scripture never says that. In fact, Scripture makes a point that this is the unique event in all of human history. All right, there is no other. Every, the rest of us are not. The rest of us are, are descended of Adam. Okay? Because if we were pre-existent, if we, pre, if we pre-existed like Jesus pre-existed, then Adam's sin doesn't condemn us. Got that? But Adam's sin does condemn us because we are in Adam. That's, that's key. Anyway, only Jesus precedes Adam. And uh, we want to be clear on that. Um, so, full of grace and truth. The only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So John testified about him and cried out, saying, this was he of whom I said. <laughs> I told you he was coming. Told you he was coming. Told you. And here he is. He, the greatest of all the prophets. Every other prophet said he was coming. John the Baptist said, this is him. This is him. 
He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Was this a he who him? Did John write this and sing this? He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Imagine an offspring that's going to be born that precedes, because he's the firstborn of all creation. An offspring born that's God himself. That's, that's what was promised. All right. For of his fullness we've all received in grace upon grace. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. And this is it. This is like Hebrews 1. This is like you know, we had lots of prophets in many portions in many ways, but in these last days he's spoken to us in his son, through his son. The only begotten God in the bosom of the Father. Understand what that is? Bosom, the place of intimacy. The apostle John got to rest in the bosom of Jesus and there was intimacy. And you think about that and here's Jesus in the bosom of the Father. When Peter wants an explanation, he shouts across the table to the, to the disciple reclining on Jesus' breast. Okay? What's he talking about? Ask him who he's talking about. And he can get information because he's right there. He's reclining right there. All right. How old was John at that point? Any guesses? I think he was probably 14. I think he was 14 or 15. He was the youngest of all the apostles. He lived the longest. He lived to 96 AD and longer. And um, unmarried. Anyway, we don't know. Um, so the, um, the only begotten God in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. By the way, that word for explanation is where we get our, our verb for exegesis. When I do an exegesis, when we tear apart a Greek passage or a Hebrew passage and we, we spell out all the, the boring technical stuff that you guys all hate, but all of that is a comprehensive, thorough, diligent, full explanation. And that's what our Savior came to do. You know, every prophet that came, they couldn't, they, I mean, they were giving what was revealed to them, but they weren't coming from the bosom of the Father. No one descended but Him, okay? He came from the bosom of the Father and, and testified to that which He knows. What a, what a, what a thrill. Over to chapter 8 and verse 58, real quickly, I'm going to run out of time. This is in a passage with some conflict, back and forth, you're of your father the devil, and uh, Jesus is making clear here that we've got different fathers. <laughs> I'm pleasing my father, you're pleasing your father, and they're all mad. We weren't born of fornication, we've got one father, God's our father. And Jesus said, oh, if that's the case, then... Uh, makes it clear that it's not. When we get down here, um, he says, uh, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. And uh, they talk about Abraham and, and uh, even earlier to this, now we know you have a demon in verse 52, Abraham died. And uh, the prophets also, and you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Surely you're not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? 
Every prophet that ever came died, and we killed most of them. <laughs> they won't say that. <coughs> anyway, he says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? So I think Jesus was pushing 40. I think he was born in 6 BC. He died in 33 AD. I think he was 39 years old, pushing 40. And uh, anyway, they say here, you're not yet 50. And you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. And he uses that I am name of deity. John 17, 5. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work you've given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And the Father says, oh, you haven't seen nothing yet. He said, you're going to get that glory and more. You're going to have a glory greater than any glory you've ever had because of your faithfulness. And like I say, this was promised in the Old Testament, Micah 5. Micah 5, and now I'm a minute over. I apologize. Jonah, Micah, Nahum. Uh, Micah 5. As for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. Not only do we get the birthplace being Bethlehem here, but look what else it says. From you will go forth, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. When Messiah comes, Messiah's origin is eternity past. It's Yahweh himself who comes, born of the virgin, born in Bethlehem. His going forth are from long ago. He's the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. He agreed to the Father's plan at the eternal life conference of eternity past. He agreed to that at the divine decrees. From the days of eternity. Heavenly Father, I thank you for our Savior. He existed in the form of God and more faith that And Father, I pray that we would understand this and appreciate it. And then, Father, imitate this. If he let go of all that, what are we holding on to? What won't we let go of? What are we so prideful? What is it we draw a line in the sand and we won't, we won't humble ourselves? Is there something beneath us? What is beneath us, Father, when we consider nothing was beneath our Savior? So thank you for this example. Thank you for this hymn. And whoever wrote it, if it wasn't Paul, whoever it was, bless him. I want to meet him someday. But Father, uh, thank you for putting this hymn the Kenosis hymn in the book of Philippians. We thank you and praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.